welcome to episode 472 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that are not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Good group for the roundup today, Sultan Meiji, uh, who is a professor of computer science at Duke and CEO of the Frontier Foundry. Jim Dempsey, who does policy at Stanford and teaches law at UC Berkeley. And Jeffrey Atik, who teaches law at Loyola Law School and investigates quantum computing law for Lund University. And finally, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the chief provocateur and the host for today's program. Let's jump right in. I thought the biggest news of the week was the Google Antitrust case kicking off. That's going to be a big deal, Jeffrey. What's at stake there? Well, it's still not clear what's at stake. I mean, you to read the uh, hyperbolic press, you would think that the whole future of, of, of the technology giants in the United States is at stake. It isn't quite clear yet what the government is asking for. The remedy part of the case is still far off. I suppose we should comment because there's lots of contrast with the Microsoft case, the last major antitrust case to garner so much attention. The government, at least, is not openly calling for the dismantlement of Google the way it did call for the dismantlement of Microsoft. So uh, the stakes might not be quite as high, but it is a, an opportunity to test a lot of modern theories about what constitutes market power in the digital world, in the world of platforms. We certainly see market share that appears staggering in the Google case, depending on the metric you look at, it appears that Google has 90 plus percent of the search engine market. And traditionally that would be by itself an area of great concern. It would be a, a monopoly. And if you did anything to preserve it, it would be monopolization, essentially. That's right. And, and, and for Google, they've actually got a good story to tell. While they have a staggering market share, if you just look at search engines, recall that Google was not the first entrant in that market. There were other firms that preceded Google and Google came out of nowhere and blew away the first generation of search engines largely on its technological merit. So if we take seriously that kind of bedrock antitrust principle that there's nothing wrong with a monopoly if it's the result of a superior product, that protects Google in some important ways. But you're absolutely right, Stuart. I mean, the issue here is not how Google came to that market share, but how it's managing to preserve it when suddenly we've got pressure Microsoft's Bing being a, a key example, who are saying, no, we can't, we can't, you know, successfully compete. We can't take market share away in the current environment due to Google's various practices and policies. The one that's easiest to understand and that gets a lot of the attention in the trial already is becoming the default for search engines, for mobile phones. And Google is paying billions, $10 billion and more just to be the default. And the response to that is, well, it's a default. You click a few buttons and you can get a different search engine. But I think the government's argument is going to be that that default has turned out to be a wall. Yeah. So that is, that is certainly the government's case, that it's a pay for a kind of advantage. And the advantage seems to be effective because 
notwithstanding that it's a couple of clicks to switch to Bing, the market so far shows that people aren't willing to do that. Now, if you accept Microsoft's view of things, that Bing is technologically equivalent, if not a better platform, given its recent enablement of chat GPT, yeah, that's, that sounds problematic. What Google says, though, is that, no, we're not paying for exclusivity. Yes, we're seeking that, but the financial aspect is really a kind of sharing between Google and the respective device manufacturers. Obviously, Google doesn't go anywhere if it's not operating on some system. And in some sense, the ad revenue that comes to Google is a function of Google, but it's also a function of for example, the deep and successful deployment of iPhones in the U.S. market. And so Google and Apple could tell a story that may or may not be convincing that, no, this is just an appropriate sharing of the economic benefit that results from, this is their word, partnership, as opposed to just one company unilaterally paying another for market access. So I thought it was very interesting that the government called, I think, their first witness Hal Varian, who has been Google's chief economist for years and years, for decades, and basically tried to turn him into the equivalent of Bill Gates in the Microsoft case. I don't think that's the world's smartest strategy. And a lot of what the government is arguing is, oh, we don't have very good evidence because these guys are so good at hiding this. They've been, they've been telling people what not to say in their emails all this time, and they turn off the, the chat recording. Those are telling points. But if you don't have a case, I don't think they make your case for you. What I would be interested in seeing is ultimately what is the text of the agreements? You know, if the Apple-Google agreement, the sharing agreement, plays as key a role in the government's case as has been suggested in the initial part of the trial, uh, we'll see that text. And, you know, the, the text, we will have different opinions of it, but, you know, the text should reveal at least enough to support the government's case if it is there. So I'm not sure what isn't going to ultimately be transparent. Right. Um, just painting Google as a bad guy. Yes, that may, <laughs> may be effective. But in the end, I'm not sure how substantive it is. And let's go back to remedy because they are going to have to come up with a remedy. When the EU was casting about for a tougher remedy than the U.S. came up with, they made Microsoft offer people a menu of choices for which web browser they wanted to use. And no one took them up on it. Yes, exactly. I, and and I, I wonder what the government in this case would do. Their, their whole case has been, you turned yourself into the default. You would think that the answer would be, well, you can't be the default anymore. And my guess is that would discredit antitrust enforcement for a generation if we told everybody, now we're going to make you not use Google or make you go through some government screen before you're allowed to use Google. Yeah, I think consumers want a default. In the day of Microsoft, where it was the web browser, it was much attention. You know, one of the things that was talked about was that you bought a computer and it didn't have a web browser. You had to affirmatively choose one of them. I'm not sure that's something that the public really wants. You know, there is a degree to which presumptively the public seems to be satisfied with the Google search issue. This isn't one of those technological stories where an inferior technology from a technical sense triumphs. It's actually, it probably is as inferior as it's ever been right now. Google's search engine 
the results are kind of crappy and, and crapified uh, in the Dr. Rao sense. And Bing is perfectly adequate. And then the AI add-ons add a lot of fluidity to the search experience. I had a pretty good experience interacting, I think, with Bing, trying to find a case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you have this experience, but you want to find a case and there are 20 links that talk about the case and four of them actually give you a link to the opinion, but you don't know which one it is and you can't tell. So you kind of have to guess. And I like the idea that I could just ask a follow-up question to say, what's the uh, citation that I can download this from? And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. So maybe it's mm -hmm. no better than searching the uh, stories. But I do think that we're going to see a different search experience and Google might not prevail in that. Well, and similarly, the economic value of Microsoft's operating system, you know, devalued enormously after yep. the Microsoft case, just because we moved to middleware and suddenly it wasn't so important what operating system you were running for lots of intensive purposes. Well, they weren't maintaining the moat. Yeah. Because they exactly. were afraid to maintain the moat. And I, I think some of that is going on with Google mm -hmm. and AI mm -hmm. and search. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. AI came into this. Uh, the other big story, maybe a non-story, is AI comes to Congress. The Schumer University kicks off with a whole set of mostly closed-door meetings in which there is a very carefully structured dialogue or Socratic dialogue about AI issues. Sultan, what was your take on Schumer University? You know, it's... It's really interesting because I think all Congress was really trying to do was say, unlike 5G, unlike social media, we want to talk about it before it causes a problem. Closed door meetings with big tech companies and companies that don't actually do a lot in artificial intelligence mm -hmm. really didn't have a lot of value. Probably half the attendance of that, those closed door meetings weren't fundamentally AI companies. In fact, one of them in particular is basically a data analytics warehouse that has the U.S. government's most important data under lock and seal. Right. And, you know, so so there, that's that's one big piece of it. The second is, is with Congress and its current composition, what's actually going to come from this, right? The, the answer is nothing. There isn't going to be a new AI regulatory body that Elizabeth Warren creates in the vein of the CFPB. There isn't going to be a radical regulatory overhaul. You know, it's a non-press press release that ensures that a bunch of Congress people get their campaign checks written. I would like to be less cynical than that, but I'm not sure right. I should be. Yeah, it was worth going to if you were a senator because you heard a lot of people who you otherwise wouldn't hear from. And you heard them pressed at least occasionally to respond and you got to hear them have that conversation in a context where they might actually be a little more candid than they would be when testifying. But uh, yeah, it was more of a news event than a policy event. The issues that were covered that weren't very surprising. Jim. Stuart, yeah, let me give a slightly more positive interpretation or slightly more generous interpretation. I agree with Sultan's bottom line that I just don't see anything passing that's, that's meaningful. We still haven't passed federal breach legislation. Notice right. legislation, you know, legislation. That's a, we, that's, a, that's a great point. Too. We haven't point, passed yeah. uh, federal comprehensive privacy legislation. But, you know, look, give the legislators credit. They are jumping on something. They are saying we sort of missed the boat on some of this tech and its implications. And so I give uh, the majority leader, Senator Schumer, huge credit. 
this this uh, close door session last week was only the first in a series. There will be more. They've got a schedule going, I think, through the fall. And we also had a, partly a press release, but again, so, sort of pity the poor legislator who worked so hard to become a United States senator and f- then finds just how hard it is to, to legislate in the current environment. But Senator uh, Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, and Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican of Missouri, two weeks ago, introduced not legislation, but a framework. So they put forth a bipartisan, again, credit where credit is due. They got in this extremely polarized age, a Democrat and a Republican to agree on anything. It's only one page. And there's a lot obviously left in details. I would love to see legislative language here. And then when they held a hearing, and by the way, they had held two prior hearings last week, the same day or the day before the Schumer uh, forum, closed door forum by Schumer, uh, Hawley and Blumenthal chaired up their third public hearing. Brad Smith, vice chair and president of Microsoft, testified in favor of the establishment of an independent oversight mm-hmm. agency for AI. Brad Smith testified in favor of licensing of AI. Now, I think that's consistent with sort of the Microsoft position, which is they support privacy legislation after all. And I think they've concluded that they're big enough to cope with any legislation that comes down the pike, particularly if they get to shape it and draft it and take credit for it. So it's a it's a complicated picture. I give the senators credit for saying something very, very significant is happening. We've loved earlier tech issues. We need to learn more about this technology, and we need to try to figure out a way to harness it, control it. Yeah. Sam Altman, I mean, he he... And from the company side, Sam Altman earlier in the year gave the blueprint. He had a very, very effective charm offensive, came forward, basically said, I'm building technology that will destroy jobs. I'm building technology that produces disinformation. I'm building technology that could be the end of humanity as we know it. Please regulate us. And then went back to California and kept developing that technology. So I think industry has concluded they're going to actually support at least the big guys, again, who, who feel yeah. they can cope with anything that comes down the pike. So I don't know. Um, well, Jim, just to jump in here, you, you've made kind of two really interesting points that's worth highlighting. Number one is all of the major tech vendors, whether in reality or in marketing, so that say they're doing a lot in artificial intelligence, are all calling for regulation and more regulation. And that's you know nice to see as a, as a citizen. I'm like, okay, great. This is very dangerous technology, et cetera, et cetera. The second, though, is that every single policy discussion that's going on is being fed information by the policy shops of all the companies asking to be regulated. Exactly. Right? And, you know, as someone who is invited to many of those closed door meetings where you have stake and, and, you know, you listen to all these people talk and it's the same memos being passed back and forth, you know, it's the likelihood of anything getting passed is mitigated. But what will eventually end up getting passed is going to be a fairly pro-business structure. Right. The the equivalent of a new agency that's very unlikely to happen. And then kind of the final point I'll say is, especially within the financial regulators, but also within the healthcare and, and biotech regulatory community, there's incredibly powerful and very broad language that allows those agencies to regulate artificial intelligence already. And especially in the banking regulators, they're already doing it. And so the notion that we're starting at nothing is something that I think you highlighted a little bit, but I, I think 
that should be very clear. There is tremendous power within the regulatory community already to regulate a lot of this. Oh, absolutely. I agree. You you don't get a free pass from employment discrimination laws just because you say, oh, we've got this fancy AI making decisions. You don't get a pass on fair credit and, and lending laws by saying, oh, we've got a more sophisticated AI. Exactly right. But I think there is this sense that even those laws don't quite cover what's happening. I, I, I'm going to push a little bit on that one, and I, I can speak firsthand on the, on the financial regulatory side. Yeah. You know, the, the rules are incredibly broad. You know, the, the federal banking regulators have the ability to, to tell any regulated institution in the United States, the process by which you are making a credit or lending decision is flawed and you must stop. Like that is on the books right now. And it doesn't really care. Did you use an AI to do it or did yeah. you have a racist old Kooten, you know, some small town not wanting to lend to African-Americans, right? The question is, is are we going to create a new regulatory system that bypasses the the human side of this entirely and just say, no, we're regulating technology? Or are we actually going to look at the outcome of the regulation, which should be to protect, support, and extend the United States or citizens and our interests? And the thing I worry about is we will continue to allow, for example, racist credit decisions but not allow AI-based credit decisions because we think we're actually solving the other and we're not. Well, and I agree entirely. And I think where the privacy community, privacy advocates got off track was missing the importance of outcomes. Hmm. It's the rubber hits the road when technology is used to make decisions that affect people. And as you say, in some respects, we already do have good laws on the books, which should be applied here. Well, let me say, I said we had laws. I did not clarify that they were good or bad. I just said they were on the books already. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure there's a law against turning us all into paperclips. Right? There, yeah. there, there are existential laws. <laughs> I, I am waiting for Clippy to make a return. It's <laughs> yes. spelled C-L-I-P-P-A-I. I, I wanted to trademark that already. They won't let me, but I really want Clippy to make a yeah. return. Gee, it looks like you're trying to turn humanity into paperclips. How can I help you? <laughs> and, and, and by the way, though, by the way, I do think that the industry almost likes the focus on the existential threat as a distraction from these on the ground realities that Sultan is talking about, which is how is this technology currently being used and will be used to make decisions that affect individual humans in very concrete things, credit, employment, housing, insurance, uh, jobs. Jobs. Yeah. Jim, I think that is the quote of this podcast. I am a deep skeptic about that attack to say, oh, you're just talking about the possibility that all of humanity will die because you don't want to talk about the fact that my AI doesn't always get the pronouns right. Oh, we're way, way beyond pronouns, right, Stuart? But, but the problem is the people who want to regulate AI all have agendas. And there's nobody right now, apart from the technologists who are worried about this, who are saying, well, there's a new risk. The old risks all have constituencies, and those constituencies do not want their priority downgraded by even even if it is a matter of the survival of the human race. I don't think the, the human race is going to be put at risk, but I do think it makes sense to say, yeah, this technology is moving so fast, and it keeps blowing past the, the guardrails that we thought were going to constrain it, Maybe we should ask ourselves, how will we know we're too close to the guardrails now? Well, I agree. 
Yeah, I will quote Isaac or paraphrase Isaac Asimov, you know, empires extend themselves either through extending their power or extending their longevity. And in the case of this part of the discussion, they're trying to extend their longevity and the relevance of these existing constituencies versus using the power of AI to actually extend the value that these technologies are created. So there we go. There's my there's my high concept comment for the day. Good, good, good. I do want to return to the observation in the book about Elon Musk that uh, Walter Isaacson wrote in which we discovered that Larry Page is even crazier than uh, Elon Musk saying, oh, what are you worrying about humanity for? That's so speciesist. <laughs> He's going to have to wear that for the rest of his life, as far as I'm concerned. That's, that's, that, that, that's, that line made me put the book down and pour a really stiff drink. <laughs> okay. Changing gears, uh, 702. I know you guys love Republican on Republican action, and uh, we got some. Last week, a couple of good Republicans, uh, Matthew Silver and Robert Goodlatte, former congressman, attacked me and Michael Ellis, another uh, Cyberlaw podcast contributor, by name over and over again in two op-eds because we had said that the approach that they were advocating, which was Let's get in bed with the left on 702 and demand that any search of a 702 database for an American has to have probable cause and a warrant. And they basically said we weren't good Republicans if we believe something else. I'm hoping to, to get a response out and to challenge them to a debate. If they do, it will definitely be on the podcast. So it was, you know, it, it's a fun discussion I understand their points, but I think their real problem is they've locked themselves into a coalition with the Brennan Center and Demand Progress, and that means they can't actually advocate for some of the reforms that Republicans and conservatives should be most interested in, and instead they're stuck with this kind of dumb and ineffective but crippling reform that would mostly prevent the FBI from doing searches. So that's my take on that. You will get to see our response as soon as it comes out, maybe as early as tomorrow. All right. Industrial policy. It turns out that's really hard. <laughs> Jeffrey, there was a lot of talk. This is basically all, almost all fallout from the new Huawei phone. But I thought there was a remarkable discussion in the semi-analysis, which is a, basically an AI analytics shop, saying they thought our sanctions have already failed, that the things that China has demonstrated, China Inc. has demonstrated it can do, mean that they, that they haven't caught up with the U.S. technology, but they're a year or two behind and, and there's nothing to stop. Well, that might be the takeaway. The article itself, as opposed to the headline, was a little bit more conciliatory. It, it said, no, it's just a dynamic target and sanctions are going to have to adjust in order to remain uh, remain effective. None of these measures can reasonably be expected to permanently inhibit China, the better expectation is simply to seek to maintain some kind of lead. But you're right, it's part and parcel of a general anxiety and a general winding down, worsening of conditions. And, and yes, the new Huawei telephone was a surprise. It had technical capacities that were not anticipated. And it is industrial policy because Apple had been the beneficiary of Huawei's falling behind for a period and, and gained a lot of 
market share, both in the domestic Chinese market and globally. If Huawei is able to claw its way back, that will certainly impact a, a major a U.S. player. Another piece that, that we looked at suggested that the Taiwanese-based semiconductor producers who have had this strange symbiotic relationship with the PRC are you know, now thinking of moving significant production not to the United States, but to Japan. So that may be a sufficient response from a national security standpoint, but it isn't industrial policy. It's not bringing jobs and production back to the United States as perhaps some of the supporters of the sanctions had anticipated. Well, it's not just sanctions. I think we're paying TSMC a lot of money to build that factory in Arizona. And reading between the lines and not really very deeply between the lines, what the Taiwanese are saying is when we go to Japan, we get a workforce that works its butt off six days a week to get stuff done. And when we get to Arizona, we get labor union demands for one thing or another and an unresponsive government in contrast to the Japanese government. So they're basically saying they're not sure that the U.S. is competitive even with all that money being poured into the industry. It's a shame. Yeah. The CHIPS Act kind of desire to uh, rebuild U.S. production supremacy, uh, yeah, may well be frustrated. Yeah. This administration in particular, though, has to say we want to rebuild it with good union jobs. And so we are always going to give unions a stay in how our industrial policy is administered. Yeah, that's just an additional charge on top of the other disadvantages of doing business in the U.S. And so, you know, you can still overcome that, but it's harder and it's particularly hard for this administration, which really wants to show the unions that it's on their side. Can I just throw in one other quick little point? You know, I teach graduate computer science. I have two, I think three American citizens this semester. It's the first time I've had American citizens in six years, right? We are not building enough high quality graduate educated engineers in this country, just full stop. Yeah. 99% of my students for the last five years have been from the PRC. So at the, at the end of the day, there's an industrial policy side that needs to also parts, which is to actually get American students. If we're going to have a, a jobs-oriented economic development program in this country, we actually have to make sure we have the workforce that can do it. And right now we don't. All right. And the last industrial policy topic is TikTok. Cepheus had said to TikTok, look, you either sell this company, uh, we're tired of negotiating with you over a hundred page agreement about what you're not going to do, just sell the company or we'll turn you over to the tender mercies of Congress. But the tender mercies of Congress turned out to be pretty damn tender. There is now a clear partisan divide on this and very few Democrats are going to vote to control TikTok. And that means that the threat of legislation is gone. And uh, it looks like the U.S. government has figured that out and said to TikTok, hey, you want to get back together again and talk about that thing? So it's kind of a climb down, but they have begun negotiating again. Yeah. And that thing is is a bit crazy in that it anticipates that effectively the, the U.S. government would have 
operational oversight of TikTok's uh, key infrastructure. And for those who are concerned about uh, Washington, the way others might be concerned about Beijing, that kind of looking over the shoulder that the uh, that the proposal outlines raises, raises alarms in certain quarters. Yeah, I'm going to guess that it's a bunch of civil liberties organizations who see a revenue opportunity in finding a problem with this proposal. It is not that different from things that have been done in the past. And I do think, you know, you really have a choice. Which government do you want looking over their shoulder? You don't get to say, I don't want a government looking over their shoulder. Well, fair enough. But there, there is, dare we say, there is a portion of the American public and American public leadership that are located on the other end of the spectrum that uh, are not trusting of the U.S. government, regardless of its track record. And this plays into the theme of U.S. government controlling social media in a way that favors progressives and uh, disadvantages uh, authentic uh, American conservatives. So I would, I would believe that if the people who said that said, that's why I'm voting to force TikTok to divest, but I, I'm not hearing that. But you know, you're right. That is the argument. I'm just kind of skeptical that this criticism has arisen at this time. All right. California. My shorthand for this segment was one state to rule them all. It's California's version of the Brussels effect. Somehow it's not as cool when you call it the Sacramento effect, but California is starting to regulate on security and privacy in ways that are going to be felt across the country. Jim, the new privacy agency that was created by California has now put forward some pretty significant cybersecurity rules, not rules, proposals for thinking about rules. Right, although quite, quite detailed and clearly the start of a rulemaking effort. Just to back up a little bit, California Privacy Protection Agency, it uh, had already issued a slew of uh, rules, over a dozen regulations as mandated by statute. It was late in issuing those. A court in June delayed them uh, until March 2024, but really that's only six months away, basically. And the agency has said, and the court, I think, opinion is pretty clear, they were not blocked from implementing the statute, only from implementing these more detailed regs. And they've moved ahead with their first enforcement action soon after the July 1 deadline this year, investigating connected cars and data flows associated with connected vehicles. Meanwhile, the Attorney General of California also has parallel regulatory authority, issued a sweeps letter to a number of companies collecting data on the processing of employee data. Uniquely, the California privacy law covers employee data as well as consumer data. In that context, the issuance of the cybersecurity regulations to me is particularly interesting. The statute says that the agency would issue, was required to issue regulations on cybersecurity audits requiring annual cybersecurity audits of some to-be-defined class of entities that collect information, particularly data brokers, but also there are different ways to slice it, but certainly other big tech companies may well fall under these rules. And what the agency did, to my mind, they're very, very cleverly drafted, clever not in a derogatory way here. They're very serious. They put forth, in my opinion, a very serious, very detailed proposal saying that uh, we don't quite yet know where to define the line. When we do the rulemaking, we will solicit comments on how to draw the line. But you must do an annual 
cybersecurity audit, if you're covered, specifically documenting and accounting for a list of cybersecurity measures. Doesn't say you must do these things, encryption, logging, zero trust architecture. Two-factor authentication, yeah. Multi-factor authentication. The common list that we've seen in FTC enforcement actions and state AG enforcement actions, particularly post-LabMD, this very detailed list of requirements that we see imposed in consumer privacy settlements. And what the agency is saying is, in your audit, the auditor must look at, are you doing these things? And if you're not doing them, why aren't you doing them? And what do you, sort of compensating alternative control do you have? I think that will push companies quite clearly, if they haven't been pushed already, to this list of measures. But, but without, without mandating exactly. it so that they don't have exactly. to uh, struggle exactly. with the uh, fact that they're locking in a particular exactly. technology. And in that sense, that's where I think this is a clever approach. And it'll be a while before this takes effect. They issued a request for comments in the spring based upon that two weeks ago. They issued this draft draft. That will then become the basis of a formal rulemaking subject to more public comments. So we're not likely to see anything until next year. And when it takes effect, it might not be until 2025. But I think this is clearly where they're heading. They put a lot of thought into this. I think they're devoted to this. And it does put this privacy agency in the position of also becoming a cybersecurity regulatory agency, at least with, with respect to personal information, not on the OT, operational technology, right. critical infrastructure side, but for the consumer data question, this agency, which had sort of ignored the security issue, they had focused on all the notice and consent and right to correct and right to access and all of that. Now they have taken on the cybersecurity issue big time, in my opinion. Yeah, that all sounds right to me. I do think, considering that, that it'll take two years to get this actually to the point where it bites, I think if we looked back two or three years, some of the stuff that's on that list wouldn't have made the list. And so if we can guarantee that there will be things that they should be, that people should be doing that won't be on the list unless they change it. And then when it's locked in, there's the risk that it won't get changed irregularly. Although I think, you know, MFA is here to stay. Encryption of data at rest and emotion is here to stay. So, yes, fair enough. Okay. And uh, California's not done with this. Jeffrey, California's actually passed this bill, the Delete Act, which is pretty much what it sounds like as far as data brokers go. There's got to be a website. And if I go to the website, I can say, I want data brokers to delete all my personal information. Right. And you can certainly see why that would be a very appealing to uh, anyone who has anxiety about their personal data being traded. It certainly reminds one of the do not call list that was one-stop shopping, that rather than having to contact all the various repositories of one's personal data, you simply say, I don't want my personal data to be traded, and the agency will supposedly take care of that. It raises tech technical questions. Is that actually feasible, or to what degree is that feasible? It also raises what is the point? Is the point really to enable personalized control of one's data, or is it just an indirect way of destroying data markets? I think it destroys the data markets. It kind of does to them what they remember when Apple said, would you like not to honor data requests from third parties? And they just knocked out a big chunk of Facebook's business. This will have that impact. 
And I think, I haven't looked at this closely, but I think what that means is it's not that your data is not going to be used to serve you ads. It's just that the data will only be used by the people who have collected it. So Facebook, to the extent they can get it, Google, a much smaller group of companies, Amazon, will have the same amount of data about you, but nobody else will be able to catch up with them by spending money. Yeah. And so our data will be siloed with each, you know, particular particular counterparty with which we deal, which, you know, offers, I guess, some kind of solace. They're not going to get the total picture of us. Except when you look at a product like Google and the single sign-in, basically when you're, you know, you're signed into Chrome, you're also into... Yeah, sharing everything, pretty much everything. Again, I think this is an area in which privacy advocates may have missed a boat. Oh, they're selling our information. They're selling our information. Contemplate the world in which... They actually don't sell your information because they have it and they don't want anybody else to have it. Right. Very good point. Okay. Here's a story that you knew was in our sweet spot. It has politics, it has tech, and it has sex. Susanna Gibson is running in a very hotly contested state legislative race where control of the Virginia legislature may turn on how she does. And she admitted after leaks that she has been spending a substantial amount of time raising funds by performing sex with her husband in exchange for tips from viewers. And remarkably, she had probably have this has something to do with the fact that it's too late to take her off the ballot and put somebody less controversial on. She has said, uh, no one's going to run me out of this race. This is just revenge porn. Somebody has released this information that I was posting. A, and I don't think the revenge porn thing is working, but it has allowed her to say, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. This is a misogynistic plot by evil Republicans to disqualify me from running. Turns out she raised $600,000 apparently doing this, which is a pretty good nest egg if you're running for office. And the Democratic Party is very cautiously kind of supporting her. I'm guessing that they're not going to make a lot of public statements. They are continuing to support her because they don't have another candidate that they can pop in there. I thought, if you want to know what people running for office in Virginia think about this, I thought that Abigail Spanberger, who always has a tough race, pretty much summed up what they wanted to say. She said, it's a shocking, terrible situation and I'm late for a meeting. So I, uh, I, I will only say, really, I think Susanna Gibson spoke for every politician everywhere on that tape when she said at one point, whoa, if you want me to do that, I'm going to need a lot more money. Okay, quick hit. Jeffrey, the U.S. Copyright Office is denying copyright even to people who say, hey, I really worked hard on the prompts to get AI to produce this. You know, over and over again, I submitted prompts and this is a really good piece of work. And it's down to my creativity in prompts. And the copyright office said, sorry, were they right? Well, I don't think that's quite what happened. So this is still dog bites man kind of story. We've gotten now several attempts to have the U.S. Copyright Office register a copyright for AI created expression, if if we can use the term. Clearly, the copyright office was right to say, don't come here with some and say, this is ChatGPT and I'm asking for the copyright. That was dumb. Right. So we, so we know that. Other thing, forgive me, 
to be a little pedantic. One has a copyright regardless of what the copyright office says. Rises without... Yes, true. Okay. But you can't sue anybody for anything worthwhile. Can't sue anybody, but you have a copyright. So when you read it a little carefully, what appears to have happened is the putative author, the human author, yes, did a lot to create that by using prompts and and guiding and did some after-production renderings as, as, as well. So there was certainly human participation. What happened, it appears, is that he refused to say, what part is my human creativity as opposed to what part is the AI's? Well, how would you do that? Did they say, tell me which part of the picture is, is, is you? Yeah, I, that, that's tough. That is tough. But that appears to be the grounds for which the Copyright Office said, no, if you're not going to respond, if you're not even going to play the game and say, look, this is mine. So actually, it brings back 100 years ago, you know, the, the early uh, photography cases, right, where the initial reaction was, no, a photograph can't be copyrightable because it's a machine that makes the image. And the court held, no, that's not true. There is creativity involved in writing and focus. And I, I'm not a photographer to speak to everything, but now no one pretends that you ask a photographer who submits to the copyright office an image for copyright protection, they're not asked, well, how much of it was the camera as opposed to the human, the human photographer. So it may not be a fair expectation that the copyright office had in posing this demand. I don't know what the legal foundation for which they could say, look, you've got to tell us how much is yours and how much is the machines other than trying to resist this series of stunts, trying to get the copyright office to do what it's clearly resisting. And that is, you know, recognizing some copyright that attaches to machine generated content. Well, and as soon as they do say this is copyrightable, they're going to have a whole bunch of people in challenging that to say, okay, so I want to use the exact same prompt. Now it's mine. Or I want to use the exact same prompt, but with a semicolon. Well, yeah. And I, it's not clear that it's the prompt that... Presumably the image will come out from the same prompt, although that's not, that's not always true. I don't think that is true. I've had this debate, Sultan might have insight on this, that you can use the same prompt and get something different out of the generative AI. Yeah, a lot of the current generation of generative AI systems are non-deterministic. You can get you know, 2 plus 2 mostly equals 4, but occasionally it does equal you know chicken. So no, it doesn't. No, that, I mean, it's one of the challenges with those five-year-old generative systems that everybody's but using. Jeff, now. isn't it true that the Copyright Office has accepted, undoubtedly, right, hundreds of different, if not thousands, of different AI-generated works where the submitter claimed the copyright, didn't tell the Copyright Office that AI had been involved, and yeah. you get a copyright on that material. The human gets the copyright on the material. Mm -hmm. Really, no, that's not true. Simply because you've registered a copyright, you have standing to go to court, but it doesn't mean that you have a valid copyright. Uh -huh. That can uh, be right. that can be challenged in litigation at any point. Okay, right? so it, the the infringer can say no, you don't. Okay, so I have a question for anybody who wants to volunteer. If there's anybody brave enough, Lyft has announced with great enthusiasm that they're going to adopt a feature first pioneered by human rights campaigners in Saudi Arabia, which is that women who want a Lyft ride and want their driver to be a woman can say, I only want a woman driver. And drivers who are women can say, I only want to pick up women passengers. And I would have thought that that 
violated a variety of civil rights laws. That, that this, this is sort of like the rules that say you can't have a one ad that says, we're looking for a woman 20 to 45 to be an assistant or asking Facebook to specify that you only wanted to serve your ad to a particular gender or a particular race. So I'm kind of surprised that Lyft is bragging about this. Okay. Everybody is demonstrating the wisdom of holding their tongue, but I think this is going to end up getting Lyft in legal trouble. We'll see. Finally, the Biden Justice Department, contrary to the advice that Jane Benbauer and I gave them straight from the shoulder last week, has actually asked the Supreme Court successfully, at least temporarily, to stay the Fifth Circuit ruling that said the government can't persuade or coerce the social media companies into adopting particular censorship policies. I didn't spend as much time as I should have with the quite lengthy SG's brief on that, but it obviously had an impact. As you'd expect, the SG, they're, they're good lawyers. They found the best argument for this. Jeffrey, what do you think? Is this going to actually result in a Supreme Court decision or at least a stay of the Fifth Circuit for a substantial period of time? Well, it seems to me that the question here is how close can the government get to compulsion without crossing the line? That, that's the government's argument. They say we, we're entitled to vociferously persuade and there was no coercion here. Yeah, because nobody worries when the president of the United States goes on in the air and says, you, Facebook, are killing people. That's not coercive. Right. So if it's not that coercion point, if the government gets cornered into a position where they, they're, they're saying, yes, now this is, this is the First Amendment speech is in play here, but there is some overarching compelling reason having to do with a public health or the quality of our political discourse that justifies it, yeah, that's a real teeing up the Supreme Court to come out in ways that might surprise and disappoint. Yeah. I do think that the discussion of this, as so much of the discussion, really fails to account for the fact that they're not just saying that the government is entitled to press its views, which, okay, you know, I think the government often does have views and it's certainly entitled to try to press them on the world. But the way in which they were pressing their views was by suppressing the speech of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. And to have a First Amendment analysis that ignores that this is about advocating censorship and aggressively advocating it just misses the point of how this content moderation debate actually plays out. And I do think that it's really vital in all of these cases that we acknowledge the free expression interest without the cant about, well, you know, these are private companies and therefore it's not censorship. The fact is people's speech is being suppressed and you need to hold the government to a particularly high standard when what they're advocating is not a particular point of view, but that other points of view should be suppressed. Okay, that is it. Thanks, Sultan. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jeffrey. Terrific discussion for our listeners. If you've got feedback, cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com will get it to us. Leave us a review and we'll read it. This has been episode 472 of the Cyberlaw Podcast.
two plus two mostly equals four, but occasionally it does equal, you know, chicken. So no. Mm -hmm.